Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, we interview first-time biographer Kathleen Stone. Her book, They Called Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men, was published by Siren Press in March 2022. It explores the lives of seven fascinating women from a broad range of backgrounds. Kathleen Stone is a Boston-based lawyer whose essays, reviews, and interviews have appeared in publications such as Ms. Magazine and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She was interviewed via Zoom in February of this year by fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly. Kathleen, it's wonderful to meet you. And you've written a fascinating treatise on women and on feminism in the 20th century. And you combined it as part personal memoir and part biography. So how did you decide on the project and how did you decide to put it in the first person in parts? So as you know, from having read the book, in the introduction, I start by picturing myself as a little girl around eight years old, wondering about women who had jobs that were then considered to be men's jobs. Women like that were not like the women I grew up around, were not like my mother who had stopped working when she was pregnant with me. But I was really curious about this other type of women who I, I knew existed somewhere. And I was curious about what made them decide they should do something that seemed so unconventional to me. Fast forward 20 some years, I was in law school myself. This was in the 1970s. And by then a healthy percentage of the class was women. But whereas I was surrounded by a lot of women that the women that I had thought about when I was little had been surrounded almost entirely by men. And then another 30 years or so went by and I was still practicing law, but thinking I might want a new challenge for myself. And I realized I was still curious about that type of woman, not only lawyers, but across all professions. So I think I resurrected that childhood interest, but from the perspective of a more mature woman. And I decided to go back and look at that and figure out about that generation of women. You have given us a profile of several women, and most of them, from my reading, were only children or the firstborn, or the firstborn daughters. Is that correct? That's right. And were you as well? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the old, oldest, yes, of three. I think there's a lot of theories about that, that perhaps the parents have more time initially with the firstborn child. And I haven't read any books on psychology about that. This is my own guess. But I think there's something about being the oldest. You don't have an older sibling to mediate the world for you. You're never in school where a teacher says, oh, I remember your older brother from class. Nothing like that ever happens. You're out there on your own, at least without an older sibling carving a path for you. 
So I think that may have something to do with it also. I think it has a lot to do with it. I responded to that in your book because I too am the oldest in a large family. So you have written about seven women spread all over different professions, certainly different ages. How did you find them? Well, I guess I should back up and say the first thing I did was just set some basic criteria, age and the type of job I was interested in. So for age, I was really looking at women who were my mother's contemporaries. My mother was born in 1922. So I was looking for women of approximately that same age. And I was looking for women who had gone into male-dominated professions. And then, of course, I was also interested in capturing some diversity of race and ethnicity. So in terms of finding women, one of them was a family friend, the one who had worked for OSS during World War II and then for the CIA after the war was a family friend. Another one, Dr. Martha Lee Powell, who was a physician, I got to her through the Oberlin College Alumni Office, where both she and I had gone to Oberlin. And then after that, it was I identified a couple of women who I thought I was interested in interviewing, but I needed a, an introduction to really get in the door. And that's where my network really came in. For instance, one of the women who's a federal judge, I thought would be pretty interesting to talk to her, but it was through a colleague of my husband's who had been that judge's law clerk years ago who made an introduction. Another woman, uh, Frida Garcia, who's a very well-known name in Boston where I live, I thought she would be interesting to talk to, but she had retired from her job where she had been an executive director of a social service agency and she had moved. So even though I had an old residential address for her, she wasn't there any longer. So I had to talk to a friend who talked to a friend who talked to another friend who finally we found somebody who knew Frida personally and made an email introduction. For those listening to us, would you just give us the professions of each one of the women? Sure. And I'll go in order the way the chapters are laid out. Uh, Dalav Ipkar was an artist and a children's book author. Muriel Petioni was a physician she was known by the time she died as the mother of medicine in Harlem. She had grown up in Harlem and practiced medicine there. Cordelia Hood was an intelligence officer, first with OSS during World War II and then with CIA after the war. Martha Lee Powell was a physician, worked on the polio vaccine when she was first out of medical school and then became uh, a pediatrician and a leading expert in pediatric infectious disease. Mildred Dresselhaus was a scientist and she was the first woman to be the first full tenured professor at MIT. And she also had a nickname, which was the queen of carbon because she did a lot of experiments with carbon as a material. Frida Garcia was an executive director of a social service agency in Boston she was also very prominent in the nonprofit community in Boston and was an advisor to mayors and governors in Massachusetts. And the seventh woman was Judge Rhea Zobel, who was a federal district court judge in Massachusetts and the first woman to be on the federal bench in Massachusetts. This book is so fascinating because you've taken these seven women and you've given us seven miniature biographies. 
You've also given us a look at the 20th century and how women, especially professional women, women with ambition and direction, wanted to live their lives. But in addition, you wrote it first person, personal point of view. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Writing in the first person did not come easily to me. (laughs) Certainly for 30 years of practicing law, with all the thousands of briefs and memos I wrote, nothing was in the first person. And it wasn't how I thought I was going to write this book. My first drafts of chapters were entirely in the third person, very traditional presentation. I kept myself completely behind the curtain. I really wanted to keep the spotlight on the women. But then I took some writing classes and then I went into an MFA program at Bennington. And I started getting feedback from people saying they wanted to hear more about me. They knew I was a lawyer, so they thought I might have something interesting to say on the subject. It took me a long time before the message really sank in. I was initially quite resistant, but I started by putting myself in the story, really just in the interview scenes, how I met the woman, what her house looked like when I went to the interview. I taped all the interviews, so I had a transcript, but sometimes I would add other details about what happened during the interview or an aside that was made after the tape recorder was turned off. So that was my sort of initial foray into writing in a personal vein. But then a student at Bennington convinced me that I had a role to play as a navigator, to really almost take the reader by the hand, if you will, and take the reader into the life of a woman in a man's world, which was something like what I experienced as a lawyer. So I became convinced by her telling me that and also by thinking about this as some kind of a personal quest that I was on to find out about these women, that then it did seem appropriate to put myself in it to some extent. What were you looking for in these women? Well, I guess I'll go back to myself as an eight-year-old girl thinking about these women and looking at my father's yearbook from his class in law school. I mean, I sound like a crazy person when I say this, but I would look at the pictures of the women And I would think, what made them so different? Was there some secret ingredient? I would fantasize about what they must be like to be so different from what I knew. So by the time, of course, I got around to writing the book and I had been a lawyer myself for 30 years, I realized there wasn't a secret or magic ingredient. But I was nonetheless interested in finding out what had formed them to become women with ambition and direction. I'm sure that a professional woman interviewing other professional women, you were able to establish a real rapport because you could ask how being a woman affected their rise. It wasn't easy. It still isn't easy, but it certainly wasn't easy then. Talk a little bit about that and how you brought that out. That's a really interesting question because you're absolutely correct. It was not easy for these women, but none of them really complained. They tended to have an attitude, well, you just go around the obstacle or you go over it and you go on with your life. None of them dwelled on the difficulties. For instance, Mildred Dresselhaus did her PhD in physics at the University of Chicago. 
And apparently her advisor told her that women didn't belong in the program at all. Women were just taking up space that should go to a man. But obviously that didn't stop her. What was it, do you think, that gave these women of this generation, a 1922 generation, the courage and direction to go forward? Because society wasn't cheering them on. In fact, that's why the title is They Called Us Girls. Because when Rhea Zobel, who eventually became a federal judge, graduated from law school, she couldn't get a job with a law firm. And as she told me, to them, to the law firms, we're not women, we were girls. That was the mentality, as you say, that the women faced. I think a lot of where their courage came from goes back to their childhoods. Either they had parents who encouraged them, gave them a foundation one way or the other. Not all of them had easy childhoods, not at all, but they all got either a sense of values or a sense of expectations from their families when they were young that served them well as they went forward in their lives. And they all somehow or another got a sense of self-confidence. And I think that came from different places. Frida Garcia, for instance, was born in the Dominican Republic and she moved to New York City with her mother and her brother when she was eight. Her mother never learned to speak English, but Frida picked it up very quickly. So she became the interpreter for the family. And because of her language ability, she was able to go around the city and, for instance, go to the library. She said she went to the library all the time. But because she had the language ability, she was able to do that. So I think she had a little bit more independence than she might have had otherwise. So I think that gave her a willingness to go out and sort of navigate the world. Mildred Dresselhaus also grew up in New York City in a very impoverished family. A family was on welfare for part of the time, and this was also during the Depression. Her parents didn't know anyone who had gone to college. Her father basically didn't work. Her mother worked some unskilled labor jobs, but she fell in with the music program at Greenwich House, which was a settlement house in Manhattan. And the staff at the music school took an interest in her. They obviously saw that she was very bright and they gave her things to do within Greenwich House. For instance, they had an internal newsletter and they would send her to the movies and say, write a review about this movie or go to this concert at Carnegie Hall and write a review about that, which she did. And when I interviewed her, she reflected back on the way those experiences of giving her a curiosity about the world and a way to have access to those parts of the world that were new to her and, and new to her family was one of the things that gave her a head start in life. Kathleen, did any of these women resist at first talking to you? So two of them were resistant for completely different reasons. Dr. Li Pao was still practicing medicine in her 80s when I first contacted her. And she was too busy to do a personal interview. She was practicing at Albany Medical Center, but she was too busy. So I didn't hear from her initially. And then all of a sudden, one Sunday morning, my phone rang and it was Martha Lee Powell calling saying, all right, let's talk right now. I have a few minutes before I have to go off to my music rehearsal and I don't have to make rounds this morning. So let's talk. So I was <laughs> taken aback. I had to find my notes and 
find a pad of paper to write on. I didn't have any recording equipment set up. So she was resistant because she was busy. Um, you can understand but, how a woman like this got through medical school. Yeah, <laughs> it was a good introduction to how she managed to do it. Not only that, but bring up three children. Eventually, I did meet her in person. She cut back on her responsibilities at the hospital, and I did go meet her several times. The other one who was resistant initially was for a completely different reason, and it was Frida Garcia. The first thing she said to me when we talked on the phone before the actual interview, she said, well, I don't fit in the box. I don't think I'm really what you're looking for because I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. And I said, yes, but you had a big role in the city of Boston. There's a city park named for her. I knew she was very close to several mayors and several governors. It was really because she was so modest that she was initially resistant. But um, we then had a couple of marvelous get-togethers. Are your seven figures still with us? Two are. And one of them, really, just as the book was about to go to press, uh, Martha Lee Powell's daughter called me to tell me her mother had died. So they didn't have a chance to read it. But the two that are still with us, have they read it? No, they haven't. It's interesting that none of the women asked to read what I was writing. I was actually sort of amazed. But I think they knew I wasn't out to do a hatchet job. I think I was fair and honest, but I wasn't looking to dig up any particular dirt. You took 10 years to write this book. Would you explain why? (laughs) Well, other than being slow. (laughs) Kathleen, you couldn't be slow to have the education that you do and the success that you've achieved. So it couldn't be a matter of slowness. Well, thank you for that. I think I do write slowly. But also when I started this project, I wasn't sure it was going to be a book. It was something I was interested in learning about. I did a couple of interviews to get started, but I didn't know at all that it was going to become a book. So I was a little tentative at first. I was also still practicing law. So I sort of had a day job. And then I did the MFA program and I had other kinds of writing and reading to do. So I guess that's why it took me a long time. And then there was a matter of, you know, finding the women, interviewing them, and doing some amount of historical research so that I could portray the historical context of their lives. What kind of law did you practice? Did it involve taking depositions so that you would have an expert in your interviewing? Yes, I did. I was litigation, did commercial and corporate litigation. I did a lot of depositions and trial work. I think some of the skills I had from law practice of interviewing witnesses, asking questions, digesting what they told me was something that I had been doing in that other context for a long time. So I brought that with me. As a biographer, this book is fascinating to read because you managed to give a full portrait of seven women and a little bit about yourself. And you did it in less than 200 pages. Was there a lot of writing and rewriting and editing? of your manuscript. Yes, yes, and yes to all all (laughs) of those. If I hadn't had a deadline, I'd probably still be rewriting. I always thought I wanted to come in around 200 pages. That was just an arbitrary page number, but that's actually where it ended up. Um, I think I approached each chapter as almost a standalone biographical essay. 
it was a little bit later after I had the bulk of them done that I started to really draw a few connections among the women. But each one could sort of stand on its own, I think. It was only late in the process that I put in what I call the intermezzos, which are the short chapters. Some of them are a page or two pages about myself. That was sort of a later addition. There's also another piece of advice you gave to biographers, which was to read your manuscript aloud. Could you talk about that, please? Sure. I think that that also is a holdover from practicing law, because often if you're going in to make a court argument, you practice that out loud. You say it to yourself in the kitchen or in front of the bathroom mirror, just so you get the words flowing comfortably. But for reading a manuscript out loud, I guess that is a little bit different. You know, you have an idea in your head and you formulate the words in your head and then you put them down on the page. But I think when you start to give them voice out loud, it becomes almost a different form of communication. It almost is like you feel like you're talking to the reader in a different way. So I typically do read something out loud. I catch all kinds of mistakes, word repetition or things that don't make sense. But I also feel like it's a way for me to to really verify, am I communicating well with the reader? And typically I would do it, as I say, in front of the bathroom mirror. But when I was working on this project, a friend said, why don't you read it to me? And she's a great audiobook fan. So she's very comfortable to listening to books. And I thought that would be really helpful. And this was in the slightly earlier stage of the pandemic. And so we didn't meet in person, but we did it on Zoom. We'd spend an hour or an hour and a half each time. And I would read a chapter or so to her. Sometimes she'd stop me in the middle and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Or other times I'd say, oh, I think I've gone off on a tangent or whatever. And I would just make a note to myself to fix it. But hearing myself say it really brought some things to the surface that might have stayed buried on the page much longer. I identified with that when you wrote that you read it out loud and you took me back to my childhood. My father was a litigator. And when he was in the midst of a lawsuit, he'd say, Kat, come in, come in. I'm shaving now. You can. I'd say, oh, no, daddy, you're just going to talk lawsuit. <laughs> and then I would sit on the edge of the tub as daddy was shaving and listen to his oral arguments. That's fabulous. I had forgotten that until I read your book, Kathleen. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up two questions about these women who lived through historical periods, one being the Depression, of course, and the other being the Second World War. Tell us as biographers how important that was to fold into your text. I think the history is always important to bring into somebody's life. But how it informs the life depends on the individual. And I guess World War II for this group of women is is a good example. For Dalev Ipkar, when the war broke out, she was living in rural Maine, married with children. Her husband was significantly older than she was, and he was too old for the military. So the war had relatively little impact on her life. As she said, we just kept farming and she kept making her pictures in her studio. For Cordelia Hood, who was the same age, essentially, the war was completely pivotal. 
It got her into OSS and into intelligence work. But by the time Pearl Harbor was bombed, she had a master's degree in German. She had spent a couple of years in Europe. In fact, she was in Austria when the Anschluss occurred. She told the story of being in the opera and going out on the balcony at intermission. And all of a sudden, the police were riding around in their open cars with swastikas on their arms, which hadn't been the case when the opera started that evening. Uh, then a friend of hers, a Jewish fellow in Austria, was arrested and sent to Dachau. So when the war came, she was back in the United States by that time, but she was highly motivated to do something about the war. So she joined OSS. For Ria Zobel, the war had a completely different meaning. She was a German by birth. She grew up in a small city in Germany in the eastern part of the country. She stopped going to school in 1944 and didn't resume school until 1947 when she was in the United States. She talked about how her family hung laundry in the attic of the building where they lived. And one day the sheets were shot full of holes because armed aircraft had gone over and had shot and it had landed in, in the sheets. But for her, the real life-changing event that happened as a result of the war was the summer of 1945. The part of Germany where she lived had come under Russian control and the Russian soldiers came and took away both of her parents. And she was age 14 and left without any parents. So uh, for her, obviously the war was experienced completely differently than the other women I've mentioned. But in terms of doing the research, in her case, I wanted to know a little bit more about what life was like immediately after the war in Europe, and also about what President Truman did about having the United States receive refugees. So that's where that research was. For Cordelia Hood, I wanted to know about the founding of OSS. So I read a biography of uh, General William Donovan. Um, and then I read about the founding of the CIA. So the war was a theme for many of the women, but it came into their lives in different ways. So the kind of research that I did and how I brought it into the chapters varied a little bit woman to woman. I think you did an excellent job as a biographer of weaving in the history of the times of these women. It's very, very important when you tell a life story. How did this book, writing this book, change you? Well, I think it turned me into a writer. You don't think you already were a writer? A thousand legal briefs does not make a writer. <laughs> At least a writer of anything that anybody wants to read, unless they have to read it. Um, no, it did a lot for me personally as a writer and to think of myself in that way. Also on a personal level, I, th I probably came to the project with a predisposition to think that parents are, and family are pretty important in anybody's life. But talking to women about their childhood influences and experiences made me think again about mine. And it made me realize all that my parents did for me in terms of values, expectations, you know, those life lessons that you bring with you. These women seem to have had parents, mother and father, and that gave their lives solid grounding, would you say? Absolutely. And in some ways influenced their choice of profession. I'm thinking about 
uh, Muriel Petioni. Her family immigrated from Trinidad when she was five and they landed in Harlem in 1919, really in the heart of the Harlem Renaissance. And her father went to City College, took classes so that he could qualify to go to medical school, which he then did. He went to Howard Medical School. Then he set up an office at home. And so she saw her father's medical practice and she decided that was something she thought she could do. In fact, when we started the interview, she said, you can't talk to me if you don't talk about my father. So I knew right away that that was a big part of her life. But all of the women did have that family grounding. It's a wonderful book. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you, Kitty. It's been so much fun to talk to you. That was lawyer and first-time biographer Kathleen Stone speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly about her book, They Called Us Girls, Stories of Female Ambition from Suffrage to Mad Men, published by Siren Press in March 2022. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on February 22nd of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.